Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. For more information about this podcast and other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org. Salem Alliance, we are starting a new series. Rob Basham wrapped up our last series called Wind Powered, and we are entering into the series in this Advent time, uh, this Advent season that we have called Emmanuel. Uh, Emmanuel, uh, probably not a name that is, uh, that's unfamiliar to you, but it's a, it's actually a Hebrew compound word, Im Anu El. Im means, uh, it means with, Anu means us. And El is short for Elohim in Hebrew, which means God. And literally, if you were to take that Hebrew compound word and take it into English, it would be the with us God. Uh, We say God with us. And we are going to focus in these uh, next three weeks together about uh, who God is. Next week, we'll talk about the what's it like to have God with us. And then the last week, uh, we're going to talk about why we need God with us. And so we're going to be uh, entering into this Advent season, focusing on Emmanuel and uh, God with us. And uh, to begin today, what I want to do is I want to read for us from Luke chapter 1. I want to read Mary's poem and then uh, Zechariah's poem, uh, the Magnificat, and what is often described as Zechariah's prophecy that is put in poetic form as we begin our series and talk about this God who is with us. So let me begin reading uh, Luke chapter 1. Begin reading in verse 46 with Mary's poem where it says, uh, Mary responded, Oh, how my soul praises the Lord, how my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he took notice of his lowly servant girl, and from now on all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one is holy, and he has done great things for me. He shows mercy from generation to generation to all who fear him. His mighty arm has done tremendous things. He has scattered the proud and haughty ones. He has brought down princes from their thrones and exalted the humble. He's filled the hungry with good things and sent the rich away with empty hands. He has helped his servant Israel and remembered to be merciful. For he made this promise to our ancestors and to Abraham and to his children forever. And then Zechariah's poem. Uh, Praise the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has visited and redeemed his people. He has sent us a mighty Savior from the royal line of his servant David, just as he promised through his holy prophets long ago. Now we will be saved from our enemies and and from all who hate us. He has been merciful to our ancestors by remembering his sacred covenant, the covenant he swore with an oath to our ancestor Abraham. We have been rescued from our enemies so we can serve God without fear in holiness and righteousness for as long as we live. And you, my little son, as he speaks about his son John the Baptist, you, my little son, will be called the prophet of the Most High because you will prepare the way for the Lord. You will tell his people how to find salvation through forgiveness of their sins. Because of God's tender mercy, the morning light from heaven is about to break upon us, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, and to guide us to the path of peace. This is God's holy word. 
So friends, as we begin this series, I just want to begin by asking the question, uh, what is God like and, uh, and, and who is he? Who is he and what is this God like? Well, I've just read to you uh, poems from Mary and from uh, Zechariah. Mary's poem, it's, it's spontaneous. It comes from the announcement of that, that she's going to conceive the Son of God. Uh, Zechariah, is, he's, he's actually speaking for the first time in months because his son, John the Baptist, has been born. And as we begin this series called Emmanuel, and we're speaking specifically about who God is, what is he like? I mean, what pops into our mind? And, and, and some folks have helped us understand that there are some false narratives, some wrong pictures of who God is. Uh, one pastor uh, says that, uh, that a lot of people view God as the bodyguard God. You know, he's the God who throws himself in front of all that is wrong and that all that might harm us. He protects us. He keeps us safe. And so nothing wrong should go. Nothing bad should happen to me. That's some people's perspective of what God is like. Others think uh, that God is like, he's kind of like the on-demand God. Uh, he's, like, he's like that button on your remote that when you want something, you just push it and God supplies your needs and he comes in and he gives you, he sort of serves you up with everything that you're hoping for. Uh, he's the on-demand God. Some people view God as sort of like Santa. I mean, uh, he's he's the he's the God who's got kind of this karmic ex- kind of a approach that he knows if you've been naughty or nice, um, and uh, and if you've been naughty, you're going to get a lump of coal in this this Christmas season, or you're going to get good gifts. So I mean, you better be good for goodness' sake, as the song says. Some view God like it's their grandpa. He's old, he's smiling, he kind of hands you pieces of candy every now and then, tosses a few bucks your way. He's a little bit hard of hearing, but you know, he's the guy who just doesn't discipline. He's always kind of patting you on the head and affirming you and saying kind words to you. And people have all kinds of ideas that pop into their mind when they uh, when they think about who God is. And in this season, this Advent season, this Christmas season, here's the interesting thing that happens. We take our view of who God is, and sometimes those views, those biblical views of God are distorted. Sometimes we're, we're right and we're accurate, but we take our views of God, and then we add them to the nostalgia of this Christmas season, and, uh, and then we add them to the cultural values of this season, values like consumerism, and we take our views of God from the biblical perspective, accurate or maybe distorted, we take the nostalgia, we take the consumerism, the cultural values of the day, and we merge them, we fuse them, we syncretize them, and we place them on the baby in the manger. We place them on baby Jesus. And, and that works for us in the Christmas season because the baby in the manger doesn't talk back to us. I mean... Jesus has a lot to say at Easter, right? I mean, he's talking to men. He's talking to women. He's talking to his disciples. He's talking to blind men. He's talking to lepers. He's talking to religious leaders. He's talking to Pharisees. He's talking to Sadducees. He's even talking to the guy who's dying next to him on a cross. Jesus has a lot to say at Easter, but at Christmas, he doesn't say anything. And so as we superimpose our maybe our biblical distortions of who God is and perhaps maybe our nostalgic ideas of this season. And then we, we kind of syncretize and move in the consumerism of the day and we place it on baby Jesus. We're all just happy to do that as we have our nativity scene set up next to a Christmas tree or maybe even a blow-up Santa or a blow-up Minnie and Mickey that are, that are in my neighborhood. Um, and this picture of who God is often gets distorted. 
one writer's name is A.W. Tozer, writes decades ago these words as he speaks about what we think about when it comes to God. It says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. For this reason, the gravest question before the church is always God himself. And the most portentous fact about any man is not what he at at a given time may say or do, but what he in his deep heart conceives God to be like. We tend by a secret law of the soul to move toward our mental image of God. This is true not only of the individual Christian, but of the company of Christians that composes the church. Always the most revealing thing about the church is her idea of God. Just as her most significant message is what she says about him or leaves unsaid, for her silence is often more eloquent than her speech. Friends, if we're honest, we have to say that our views of God are shaped by so many things. Our views of God are, are shaped by our idea, our, our understanding of Hellenistic thought. Our, our ideas, our picture of God is shaped by our worldview, this post-enlightenment view. Our view of God is shaped by the denomination that our church is a part of. Your view of God is shaped by the pastor who, whose teaching that you listen to. Your view of God is shaped by your parents' view of God. Our understanding of who God is is shaped by so many things. And when we think about our biblical idea of God and we fuse and merge and syncretize our nostalgia and our, our values of culture in with the Christmas story and we superimpose that on the baby in the manger, sometimes Jesus gets lost in his own birth story. We read Luke chapter 1, and some of you, as I read Luke chapter 1, if I were to continue reading in Luke chapter 2, because you watch the Charlie Brown Christmas every year, you hear it in Linus's voice. When you imagine angels, you see kids, little kids running around in a church platform and in a pageant with little gold halos on, and you wonder to yourself, I mean, how could anyone ever be afraid of angels like that? And you see shepherds, and little kids are in bathrobes holding sticks. And we sing our Christmas carols, And we get our own distorted view of who God is. But here's my question. Because remember, this is what Tozer said. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Here's the question. Is when Mary was told by the angel Gabriel that she was going to conceive and give birth to the Son of God, what was her idea of who God is? When Gabriel comes, the same Gabriel, the same angel that came to Daniel 400 years earlier, When Gabriel comes to Mary and says, you will conceive, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you and and conceive in you the Son of God who will be the salvation of Israel and many nations, who does she think God is? Because if she thinks that God is vicious and malicious and mean and nasty, she's probably going to say like Sigourney Weaver said in the movie Alien, get it out of me. But what we see actually is that her idea of who God is is rooted in her view of God from the scriptures. Think about this. This young teenage girl who's likely illiterate, who doesn't have a Bible or Bibles in her house, when she hears how God is on the move, 
out of her gushes scripture. As she thinks about these, these, these moments of reversal and deliverance and how God is going to send the rich away empty-handed and he's going to come and exalt the humble. All of this is rooted in the longing of a nation and her view of God is shaped by this, the Tanakh. This, it's, the, it's the Hebrew, it's the Jewish Old Testament. And it just gushes out of her. She quotes 1 Samuel chapter 2. She alludes to, to Genesis. She quotes from Habakkuk and Ezra. She quotes from the Psalms. She even quotes from Isaiah. She, all this, this is the canon. This is the, 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 the word canon literally means the standard. This is, this is the, the scripture that gushes out of her when she understands that God is on the move and he's going to move in her life, which if we can be honest for a moment, let's just pause the button and say, you know, when we hear that God is going to do something and he's asking us to be involved in what he's doing, what, what comes out of us? I mean, here's this teenage girl who has obviously marinated and meditated in the scriptures and what flows out of her is a biblical understanding of who God is and what he's going to accomplish. Sometimes I wonder that we hear that God is doing something. We say, oh man, thanks God. And if we want to expand our worship, I mean, we, we get our phones out and we open our Bible apps and we do some searching so that we can, we can offer God our praise and worship. And I don't say that to condemn us. I say that to hopefully stir some hunger within you that, that like Mary, we can marinate ourselves in the, in the truths of Scripture and that we too could respond and say, this is who God is. Who does Mary think God is when she hears that she's going to be pregnant with the Son of God. Who does, who does Joseph believe this God to be? Who's Elizabeth and Zechariah, the shepherds, the wise men, uh, Anna and Simeon, who will be in the temple the day that Jesus is dedicated? I mean, who do they think God is? And friends, what I want to do as we continue, as we launch this series, is I want to, for a moment, just from the poems that we've read from Zechariah and Mary, Paint for us a picture of who our God is. And as I do that, I, I hope that you will contrast your perspective of who God is. Because remember, the most important thing about us is what comes into our mind when we think of God. And as we see the God of Mary and Zechariah, my hope is that we would contrast their picture, their perspective of who God is with our understanding of who God is and then perhaps we could recalibrate and realign our thinking about who is this God, this Emmanuel, who is with us? So let me just jump right in here and begin by saying that here's the very first thing that I want you to know that, that this is Mary and Zechariah's God. God is transcendent and he is imminent. We see this from the poems. Let me explain these two words because these are words that, that these aren't, this isn't common language for us. You probably get the idea of transcendent. The, to transcend is to, to be above. It's another word for this is the word infinite. Think for a moment of the person you believe to be the most wise person that you know. Or think about the person from history that you say, that's a very wise person. And then when you compare them to God, what you need to understand is that God is transcendent. He transcends. He's infinitely more wise than any person you know in the current age and any person you know from history. God is infinitely, he transcends in wisdom. Think about the most loving person that you know or the most loving person from history. 
and then compare them to God. God is infinitely more loving. He's, he's, he transcends all love for he is love. You see, God is, is also mighty. He's powerful. And if you think about someone who's, who has might, who's got power, who's got influence, friends, God is infinitely more powerful. He transcends in power. This is the God of the plagues in Egypt in the book of Exodus. This is the God who parts the Red Sea. This is the God who feeds his people with manna in the wilderness, who travels in a cloud by day and a fire by night. This is the God who in dark clouds with thunder and lightning descends on Mount Sinai in which all the people say, Moses, you go up the mountain. We're staying over here because we're afraid we're going to die if we go up there. He's a God who's transcendent. And at the same time, he's imminent, meaning he's personal. This, this is the God who, uh, who wants to be in relationship with you. This is the God who wants to speak to you. This is the God who wants to hear your opinion, who wants to be a friend of yours. He is both transcendent and imminent. Now, I want you to, to hear this uh, from Mary's poem and Zechariah's poem. Luke chapter 1, verse 49, um, Mary alludes to his power. The mighty one has done great things. Things for me. And then Zechariah in verse 68 of chapter 1 of Luke says, Praise be to the God of Israel because he has come to his people. This is the God who's transcendent. This is the God who's all powerful. Yet this is the God who's also personal. He's imminent. And for Mary and for Zechariah in their day, there was a tension between these two things of transcendence and imminence, just like there is today. See, in, in Greek mythology, which they probably would have heard some about, the, the Greek mythological gods were incredibly imminent or personal. They, they, they interacted with, with people, but they had major character flaws. They did not transcend. They had morality issues. They, they weren't transcendent. They weren't infinitely wise or infinitely loving, infinitely powerful they were personal, but the, these two things didn't go together. And, and, and flip it, our, our founding fathers of our nation, many of them were deists. They believed in a transcendent and infinite God, but yet they didn't believe in a God who was personal. They believed in a God who sort of wound up the, the universe like a clock and then just kind of has bigger fish to fry and stepped away and kind of let it do its thing. Pantheism believes in a transcendent God. God is everywhere, but God, you, you can't relate to him. Friends, this tension of this powerful, infinite, transcendent God who longs to be in personal relationship with, with us is the God that Mary and Zechariah know. And this tension of both being transcendent and personal or imminent is something even our culture can't get their heads around. I mean, think about the fantastic movie, Bruce Almighty. That was a joke. Bruce Almighty, Morgan Freeman, plays the role of God, and he appears to be foolish, because he gives the job of answering prayers to a character played by Jim Carrey, and he makes a mess of things. The God of culture presents a God who's, who's not both transcendent and imminent or personal. And sometimes depictions culturally are of a God who's distant and who's not interested. And yet Mary and Zechariah present to us a God who's incredibly interested. He takes notice of his lowly servant. And at the same time, he possesses the infinite power and love and wisdom to get the job done of reconciling people back to him.
This is why Mary and Zechariah erupt in poems and songs about who this God is. He is transcendent and he is imminent. He is personal. And then the second thing that, uh, that Mary and Zechariah uh, point to here is that he is a God is all-powerful, yet he identifies with the needy and the humble. Yes, he's mighty, but he's all-powerful. All what I mean by that, he has status, he has position, he's the God of the universe, and yet he identifies with the needy and the humble. Um, Again, look through Mary and Zechariah's eyes here for a moment at the leaders that, that surround them because you know so the celebrities, you know the people who are, you know, quote unquote, important in our day and age. And friends, they don't mingle with us common folks. I mean, in her day, Mary would have thought of leaders like Pharaoh, who was seen as a leader, but not only a leader, he's a divine leader. He's a God in himself. Or there's a Caesar that Zechariah would have been familiar with. And, and Pharaoh, he doesn't spend his time with the common folk. He hangs out with his, his counselors, his magicians, his royal court. This is who he spends his time with. And Caesar, he's hanging out with senators and, and nobles. And you're not going to catch Caesar. You're not going to see uh, Pharaoh down at your local restaurant or wandering the aisles of Fred Meyer doing some grocery shopping or in the, in the line with their car, going to wash their car. Pharaoh and Caesar aren't going to do that. They're not going to mingle with the common folk. They got status. They're going to send people to do that stuff for them. And when a leader who has status and position, who's seen as powerful or in our day and age has celebrity status, when they choose to mingle with common folk, it delights us. Consider for a moment this article written by the Washington Post some years ago. The, 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 the writer of the article says, The stealth king has struck again, and no one knows where he'll pop up next or in what disguise. And the Jordanian royal palace isn't saying. At least twice in the past two weeks, between his regular appointments with statesmen and courtiers, King Abdullah has slipped out of the cool provinces of his palace and posed as a commoner, mingled incognito with his subjects and inspected the workings of his troubled realm. The 37-year-old monarch has had to take care about his appearance. He's not exactly unrecognized here. Posters of his smiling boyish face adorn the walls of practically every office and shop in Jordan often alongside the likeness of his late father, King Hussein, whom he succeeded. On his first undercover jaunt 10 days ago, Abdullah donned a traditional long white robe, a red and white checked headdress, and the final touch, a scraggly white beard. Posing as a television producer, he accompanied a cameraman and a, a reporter, which was in fact his press secretary. Uh, he accompanied them into Jordan's state-run trade zone where he got an earful from merchants about his red tape and inefficiency. The king was finally outed by security guards who accosted the crew and demanded to see its permit to make a film. Unable to shake them and by some accounts annoyed at their persistence, Abdullah removed his disguise to the general astonishment and surprise and the delight of of all. Friends, when someone in position and status and power chooses to mingle with the common folk, there's something in us that's delighted by that. With something in us that just enjoys the fact that, man, that someone of that kind of status 
would, would want to be with me and want to know what I think. And friends, this is the picture that Mary and Zechariah give to us. Luke chapter 1, verses 47 through 48. My soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but he has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. This powerful God, this God of status, this God who is divine is thinking about us, about common people, about humble people. A great reversal is taking place. Uh, the, the hungry are being filled with good things and the rich are being sent away empty, which, by the way, for a moment here, we need to pause and think because we happen to be part of a, a, a nation that is one of the most wealthy and richest nations, not only in the world, but perhaps in all of world history. And we see God drawing near when, when we get what we want, right? I mean, because it's like, I got that apartment, I was hoping, hashtag blessed. I got that promotion that I was longing for, hashtag blessed. I got that new car, hashtag blessed. Um, you know, I, I'm, I'm healthy, hashtag blessed. I got to eat at this restaurant, hashtag blessed. We see God blessing us when we're wealthy and rich. Yet what we see in this depiction of who God is, we see a God who takes from the rich and identifies with the hungry and the humble and the poor. We, we should take note that if our God identifies with the humble and the poor, that we too as his followers, people who've been incredibly blessed, should also identify with the poor and the hungry and the humble. So friends, Mary's view of who God, he's transcendent and he's imminent or personal. And he's powerful, he has status, and yet he identifies with the humble. And then thirdly, he is both just and merciful. Uh, we see this Again, in Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary writes in verse 50 and then 54 to 55, his mercy extends to those who fear him. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. And then Zechariah in his song says in verse 77 and 78, he gives his people the knowledge of salvation through the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God. Both Mary and Zechariah celebrate the fact that our God is just. He blesses those who fear him, who obey him, who revere him. And at the same time, he's, he's merciful. Yes, see, this is the same God who evicted Adam and Eve from the garden. But this same God who said, I can't be around sin, I can't tolerate sin, then goes and prepares a way for people to be in his presence again. So he, he creates a sacrificial, sacrificial system where justice has to be served. But instead of justice being served on people, it's served on an animal. A lamb is slaughtered in the temple because uh, this punishment must be borne by some. So this animal takes our punishment so that for the year in the Old Testament sacrificial system, for the year people could approach God. 
And then at Christmas, God sends his son and God, uh, God, God's son, Jesus, then lives his life. He lives a life that you and I couldn't live. He dies the death that you and I should have died because John the Baptist says, this is the Lamb of God. And all the justice that needs to be served for our sin, our iniquity, our guilt is laid upon this Lamb of God, Jesus, so that you and I can have life and have life eternal. See, justice is served so that God's mercy and his love can, can then be expressed to, us, expressed to us. But friends, in our day and age, what we've done with this definition of love and mercy, we've completely gutted it. See, we've, we've redefined love. We've defined love in this way. We've said, love is, is I, I get to do whatever I want. I, you know, I, I, I get to do whatever I desire. I can fulfill my desires and, 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 you know, that, 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 that's, I, that's me and that's, and don't tell me I can't do that because that wouldn't be loving. And yet here we have a God who's saying, you know what? He, he, he's loving enough to tell us, you know, here's the best way that you can live. And by the way, here's the best way that you can represent me because I, I did create you. And there's this idea that, you know, that God is love and, and yet, when it comes to his justice, we really, we kind of kind of recoil at that thought about, you know, well, we, we love justice. When someone wrongs us, we want justice to be done, but, you know, we get to do whatever we want. It's kind of like if someone broke into your home and kidnapped your children and then trafficked them, your response would not be, well, you know what, people just get to do whatever they want. No. Because if you're a loving father, if you're a loving mother, you're going to call the police and with a sense of urgency, you're going to implore the police to go and try and rescue and try and save. You're going to go door to door. You're going to go as many places in the city to see if you can find your son and daughter. And friends, by the way, that's exactly what God did for you, for me, for us. God, so moved by justice and love, sent his son, born in a manger, pursued us, those of us who were lost, those of us who were kidnapped in the, into the kingdom of darkness so that we might be rescued and brought into the kingdom of light. And this is why we celebrate at Christmas. Because our God is both transcendent and imminent. He's infinite and he's personal. He has status, he's powerful, yet he dwells with the humble. And he is just. And at the same time, merciful and the last reference to who God is let me just read to you uh, these words God is holy and incarnate he's both holy and incarnate these are words we, we hear these words we hear about the incarnation we hear about holiness but I'm not sure if we completely understand holy and incarnate so let me explain it for us okay I'll give you a really Profound illustration on holiness. It's actually pretty simple. Um, imagine for me, because Trina does this often, she will bake cookies in our house, and she will want to deliver those cookies to our neighbors. And typically we do this at Christmas time. This Christmas is a little bit different. Uh, but she'll bake cookies, and she will decorate them, and she will, when she's done making cookies, and by the way, in her kindness, she makes enough cookies so that we get cookies as well in, in our house. Um, and, but when the cookies are baking, when she's decorating, if she chooses to decorate the cookies, here's what she does. She takes all the cookies that are in a class by themselves, the ones that are perfectly shaped, the ones where the decorations came out perfect. I mean, when you put these things on a plate, they, they look professional. 
professional. They're, they're first class. They're a, a, a cookie that it's in a class by themselves. Those cookies get put over here. Those are going to our neighbors. The second class cookies stay with us. These are the ones that are a bit distorted, misshapen. Some are broken. The decoration on the cookie didn't quite come out right. Those are the, the ones that are first class are distinct. They're set apart. That literally is what holiness means. They're set apart. They're in a class. They're distinct. They're in a class of their own. They're distinct from the ones that are broken and misshapen. Now, here's what God is. God is holy. He's in a class by himself. Now, I, I know I put the cookies on the bottom shelf, no pun intended, to help you understand what holiness is. But here's what I want you to hear. Zechariah and Mary acknowledge that there is a holy God who's in a class all by himself, but here's what he chose to do. God laid aside all his royal and divine privileges, his prerogatives, and he left his distinct class of his glory and came and he took on flesh and he took on the brokenness of a human body. And he willingly did this. He willingly knows what it means to be thirsty. He knows what it's like to be hungry. He knows what it's like to be sick. He knows what he's, what it's like to have a harsh word spoken to him. He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like, friends, to have the world against him. And why did he do this? Why was in his holiness that he set all that aside and incarnate himself and take on flesh? The writer of Hebrews tells us, so that he could sympathize with us in our weakness and represent us and be our high priest. He became one of us. Oh, and Mary and Zechariah celebrate this. In their poems, in their songs, this is what they say. From, all, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For the mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. Zechariah says, praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come to his people. Friends, this is the God of Mary and Zechariah. This is the God of the Bible. He's transcendent and imminent. He's infinite and personal. Uh, he's the God who's powerful. He has status. He has position. And yet he likes to dwell with the common people, the humble people, the hungry people. He is both just and merciful and loving. And yes, he is both holy and incarnate. And this is why the people in the Christmas story are so excited and are bouncing off the walls because the longings of a nation are coming into reality. This is why Mary says, let it be so as you've said to me. My soul rejoices in God, my Savior. She sings her song. This is why Joseph says, you know what? I'm okay with this This. this sort of this blemish on my resume. I'm okay if people kind of look at me sideways because they're wondering about my reputation and, and, and was I, you know, was I, did I have integrity as I married Mary? That's why Joseph is okay about being a political refugee. This is why shepherds are running through the city of Bethlehem, the village of Bethlehem, and banging on doors in the middle of the night saying, the, the Lord saves, Jesus is born, Jesus is born. This is why wise men will travel thousands of mile and, miles and offer gifts to a baby. Friends, this is why Anna, 84 years old, is running around in the temple and she's saying the Redeemer of Israel lives. The Redeemer of Israel lives. This is why Simeon, who dedicates and prays over Jesus and he's eight days old, says, God, take me now. I'm ready to die for my eyes have seen the Redeemer of Israel. He will be a light to the nations and he will rescue Israel. Friends, this is why people are exploding with joy and excitement and worship because God has come. Emmanuel, 
God is with us. And friends, this is why on the front end of an Advent season, the one thing that I would say to you and I as to how do we respond to all this, it's simply to recalibrate our understanding of who God is, to strip away perhaps the syncretism of nostalgia and the cultural values of a day, and to come and worship, to come and worship the King, our Jesus, born in a manger, who's come to rescue us. And in this season, this Advent season, would you make time to worship this God? Let's pray. So, Lord, as we think about your name, Emmanuel, the with us God, the God who is with us, as we think about who you are, I ask and pray that you would give us a grander vision of who you are. Oh, Lord, forgive us for the many times where we have just made you just a little bit bigger than us, a little bit taller, a little bit wiser, a little bit more muscular and mighty. Oh, Lord, you're infinitely more powerful, infinitely more wise, infinitely holy, infinitely light and loving infinitely righteous. God, how do we even describe you? We have a loss for words. But in this season, the words of Mary and the words of Zechariah come to mind and we worship you for the fact that you are indeed transcendent and imminent. You are the God who is powerful, yet you identify with the humble. We worship you for that, Lord. You are the God who is just. We love justice, Lord. Oh, Lord, would you mete out your justice and your righteousness? And at the same time, Lord, would you continue to open that path for us to be in relationship with you? Thank you for your great love. And Lord, we thank you that you are indeed holy, that you're in a class by yourself. But Lord, we also thank you that you came as a child, embraced our brokenness so that we could be made holy. Oh, Lord, we worship you in this season. Now receive our worship as we stand and sing and sit in awe of who you are. We pray this in your name. Amen. Thank you for joining us on the Salem Alliance Church Podcast. We are a community of believers located in downtown Salem, Oregon, and we are passionate about our city being a city at peace with God. If you have a request that we could pray for, please email us at prayers at salemalliance.org. If you'd like more information about this podcast or other resources, please visit us at salemalliance.org.